everyone and welcome back to the Just Interesting People podcast. Um, thank you so much for joining us today and I just wanted to say bonjour to our guest Marion. Jeremy's going to introduce her properly um, but yeah thank you for being here. We really hope you enjoy this episode. It's going to be really interesting. I've got so many questions <laughs> so let's dive right in. Well done for the Marion with your best French yeah. accent. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Bonjour. Yeah, thank you uh, <laughs> for being with us today. Uh, so we got two Frenchy and British today. Yeah, <laughs> they're taking over, guys. <laughs> um, so just to have a quick intro before we dive into your story, um, I. I saw an article about you on LinkedIn that a friend of mine uh, shared and I read the article. Uh, it was about an award uh, you, you won for what you've been accomplishing the last few years. Uh, we're going to be talking about it. I'm not saying it about it. Yeah. <laughs> um, and yeah, I thought it was such an incredible story. Uh, I also saw that you just published a book, so you can tell us a little bit about that uh, in a minute. Uh, but... Yeah, you 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 seems to had an, an amazing story for the past twenty twenty years, pretty much. Um, so yeah, we we we're gonna dive into that. Uh, let's start at the beginning. You were born in France, right? Where are you from? In France? I'm from southwest of France. It's near Bordeaux. Uh, okay. Yeah, I, I come from the countryside. It's it's actually a wood, like a forest. Where I grew up, um, yeah, very, uh, very uh, special uh, parents and their choice of lifestyle. Uh, yeah, it started uh, from uh, being a kind of in the wilderness. Let's. Uh, so the the the, the first uh, the first years of my life uh, been connected to the nature a lot, uh, but it was quite difficult actually to connect to human at that time. Because I, I was more familiar with uh, wild, wild uh, animals. Uh, I only had an elder brother, one year older than me, who also shared my kind of day-to-day playing around in the woods, but uh, no much contact with other kids. And uh, our parents didn't really it's put because us you were into like school, a, an introvert, a proper school. Shy kid or? <laughs> Uh, it was really a choice from my parents' side that they, they believed that uh, nature uh, and um, being intimate with nature would teach us more than any kind of school. That's a, that's a good point of view. I mean, I don't, I don't disagree. <laughs> so did you, what, what age did you go to school then? Did you ever go to school? Yeah, I ended up being uh, in school around six to yeah six seven years old, and um, finally yeah it was very difficult to to get used to social life, but I think it was a, a great um, a great move from the side of my parents that they changed their minds and put my brother and I in the school so that we get more uh, education in terms of like emotional uh, social education with other kids otherwise it was really uh, big, being a little bit extreme in the connection with nature only 
interesting. I guess that explains the some things you did later within the environmental and nature side of it. But it's interesting because um, I made up in my mind that. So I'm just gonna say it now. So later in in life, you're gonna become uh, a guide in the Himalaya. Uh, so I don't know why, but I made up in my mind that you're coming from the Alp, you know, like, and you're born in a mountain, and 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 that's what you know. I didn't expect you to be born like <laughs> on the other side at all. <laughs> yeah, Bodo is more like is more nearer to the sea than the mountains. Yeah, but my family also from the mother, uh, from my from the side of my mother, they are great uh, climbers. Both my mother and her brother, they have been um, one of the first to climb very uh, difficult routes on on mountains in the Alps. Mm. Okay, so you come from a family of alpinists and everything. Yeah, so when I was kids, I also um, did some climbing with my mother and uncle. So I was very also uh, kind of um, uh, trained, well trained, uh, not to be scared. Uh, first, because of the the relation um, very close to nature. And then second, because of uh, being on the rock. I mean, on the rocky slopes of the mountains and uh, just being able to find my way, jumping from one stone to another, like, <laughs> like a little goat. Uh, and also what I did when I was a teenager is that um, I did the circus school. That was another crazy idea of my, my mother. Uh, she, she was a clown. Uh, yes, <laughs> and, and my parents, both my father and my mother, they 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 have put a, a rope, of iron rope, uh, in the garden, like around one meter and a half um, high. So we were trained to to walk, to walk and to dance on the on the on the rope. So it was very good for balance. And also for uh, just being able to go through your fear of falling down. And so, yeah, a lot of different kind of access to being comfortable with uh, adventure and um, facing challenging situations like that. Yeah. yeah, I think it has a great impact in my, in my, in my kind of mind. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you've been trained and prepare early on to face challenges to face unusual situation rather than just watching tv <laughs> or whatever yeah that that was the choice of my parents to, cool. to to focus more on this kind of education nice yeah i'm very grateful actually very very grateful to my parents yeah and they must be pretty happy about what you did later thanks to that <laughs> Yeah, I think they, yeah, they, they, um, they learn also, they learn from, uh, from what I bring them back now, uh, from, from the other side of the world. And, uh, and it's, it's really nice uh, relationship of being able to receive from your parents and then giving back 
because you you get some knowledge from other um, other fields, other part of the world, and then giving back to my parents. Yeah, I love that. Did you ever travel much as a child, like as a family? Did you ever go on holidays and go to different locations, or did that only start later on in life for you? Yeah, I fell in a travel when I was um, when I was young. It, it really happened uh, as my teenage age. And I was not with my parents. Okay, so let's dive into that. How did you decide at 18 years old to move to India? How did that happen? <laughs> yes, the, the, first, uh, the first trip uh, I made to, to Asia before I, I decided to, to settle down in the, in the Himalayas was when I was 16 years old. And I went to Calcutta in India, uh, in the West Bengal, where... The, the father of my best friend was um, a street doctor. He, has, he is actually the founder of, of this, um, this street medicine that, uh, movement that it's becoming bigger and bigger now. It's really like when you are able to reach the, 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 the poorest of the people uh, who are really in need and, and that other NGOs usually cannot even reach because they are in the slums or they are like in different areas where so this doctor dr jack uh, he's the founder of calcutta rescue and he did some um, clinic mobile clinic uh, work for many many years like 45 years now he's just back this year in in the uk and um, my best friend was uh, also um, from england and uh, she she was with her parent like mother and the stepfather in Dordogne, in France. And uh, during the, the um, high school time, yeah, she, she, yeah she, she decided she wanted to go find her father. Yeah, you know, mm-hmm. teenage age, you want to know your roots. So we went, yeah. we, we went together. And, we, and then we, we found uh, Dr. Jack, and then um, it was a huge... Um, kind of um, insight for me that um, someone who could completely turn his mind towards um, helping other people and he was like a, a model for me so I decided after that uh, I wanted to to learn myself how to become a person who who can dedicate her life to to others so I, I've, I went back to France between 16 to 18 years old and I couldn't find any school who could teach me that. So I decided, okay, I'm going to go back to, uh, to India in the monastery, uh, in, in a Buddhist, Tibetan Buddhist monastery near wow. Darjeeling, where actually a Tibetan master were teaching, was teaching meditation and mind training and um, related to uh, how to connect to others and others pe- suffering so that uh, to be able to alleviate this suffering. Uh, this is called compassion in the, in the Tibetan Buddhism. And it is a real training. It's something that uh, anybody who, uh, who is interested in um, training his mind towards this kind of um, altruistic view can actually develop these inner qualities 
So I found it very, very um, kind of impactful the way that um, people really dedicate their time in a monastery to, to train their minds, to sustain a kind of motivation that, uh, to be a resource for others. And then um, I, I was working in Calcutta at that time, still in the, in the leprosy clinic of Dr. Jack. Mm. And at the same time, I, I was um, a student at Darjeeling in the monastery. And the, the, the meditation master, he accepted that I became full-time a resident in the monastery. So then I moved completely into the monastery for three years and a half. I, I stayed there and received the training. And after that, uh, I, I left the monastery and I went to Tibet. <laughs> okay, so I've got so many questions about all that. Uh, the first one is, how did your parents react when you told them at 18 years old, mum, dad, I'm moving to India? <laughs> <laughs> well, I started, I started telling them I was going to move when I was 16 years old. So they got used to the idea. Mm for two years that mm -hmm. uh, I was going to just travel back to India. And um, first, I didn't tell them I was going to stay um, all my life, <laughs> like what I did, actually. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, <clears throat> I was just going to work in Calcutta uh, for the NGO, uh, Calcutta Rescue. And also, I, I was ready also to, to, to learn meditation at the, in the monastery in Darjeeling. And um, uh, I told them I, I was going to do that. So um, for, for, the, for the period of time between when I was 16 to 18 years old, I started, I started um, changing a lot of things in my life. I, I shaved my hair. I became a Buddhist nun. I became um, completely like focused on learning meditation, studying Buddhist texts. All my free time, I was um, completely um, absorbed with uh, this, this kind of education that I really wanted only that. So for them, I think it was like um, almost like an evidence that um, right. like um, she must go kind of feeling Makes sense. yeah so there was not much uh, resistance actually they were very supportive um, it was a little bit extreme I must say but like for a teenager you know you expect that your kids also like uh, <laughs> try all kind of things uh, searching for himself or herself so no they were not uh, afraid of uh, let me, letting me go and um, they were not also encouraging anything. Um, I think for them at the, at the beginning, it was like just checking on whether I was going to a sect, you know, sectarian right. um, yeah. group yeah. Of, yeah, or not. And then uh, they could check on whether I became more open to others or if I would become more like um, uh, turn into my own kind of, a way of thinking and or a group of people way of thinking and just uh, not being able to um, include other people 
So th yeah. what this, what they have seen, seen is that I became much more open at that time. So it was a good sign, I think. So they let me go. I have to ask you about you shaving your head. Was that <laughs> scary? I don't know. Like, I can't imagine doing that. How was that? Was it freeing? Was it incredible? How did that feel? I think it's it's a very good experience. That um, I, I recommend to everyone that one day just uh, trying it, that it feels so light uh, because not only the weight of the, your own hair that you have to carry on your head, not the physical weight only, but also the psychological uh, load of that. It's it's uh, it's so connected to how you identify to yourself. So yeah. when you are able to to cut that, you actually release yourself from a lot of identification. So it makes your uh, your own being being much more light. Mm. Interesting. <laughs> yeah, because we yeah, it's it's so linked to our appearance. So I guess that's really like especially really... for a lot of girls. I feel like it's their yeah. like security blanket. Like this is my personality having like long, dark, luscious hair, whatever it is. So yeah. I have thought about it before. Really? Yeah. Huh. I don't think I like. I <laughs> never. I've never done it. But I just think it must be so freeing just to shave and just be like, "Fuck this shit." I'm not going to be bothered like dyeing it or cutting it or faffing with it and having greasy hair and all the rest. Like, I hate washing my hair as well. It'd be so much easier. Yeah. But yeah. Wow. Yeah, I think for for monks and nuns, uh, it has a great um, symbolic value. Of freeing yourself from all the attachment to your appearance and um, all the mundane kind of uh, attachment that you have, like the worldly link that you usually nourish, and that actually takes a lot of your time. So when you mm. cut that, then um, you actually get more time to turn your attention inward and um, explore um, deeper in a deeper level. Uh, other dimensions of your being interesting okay i've got questions about uh, i've got Go so on. many questions <laughs> about the monastery what was life like there because we've spoken to somebody who was a monk in a monastery in canada but i'd love to know your experience of what happened on a day-to-day -day life how many people were there what did you eat what did you do like i have so many questions <laughs> <laughs> yeah the daily life uh like uh, as any religious structure Usually, you 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 follow a certain discipline that you get up very early in the morning. You go to a, a gathering for prayers, and then um, you have time for yourself in your own cells, where you uh, either contemplate uh, in meditation your own mind, or you have a prayer book where that you actually recite the prayers or you learn by heart, and then. Um, you do all the rituals. Uh, so in Tibetan Buddhism, we actually have a lot of rituals. So it's a lot of also learning around uh, how to um, visualize different things dur during the um, during the prayers, and then how you use different rituals objects uh, who have symbolic um, different as symbolic values that. Are very important for the rituals so it takes years actually to master the art of ritual in the tibetan buddhism and um, at the end of the day um, yeah we, we usually like uh, finish around eight nine in the evening go back go to sleep early and um, there is no distraction at all no phone no 
access to um, news and you know, what's happening in the outside. So uh, all your attention in, is turned into the inward. So basically what you do is that um, you learn how your mind uh, work, works. Yeah. So the, the functioning of the, of the, of the mind. And that's something that's um, at the beginning is, it's more like at the grosser level. That's uh, all the thoughts and uh, all your emotions and the reaction to things and all. But uh, the, the more you stay into that kind of li lifestyle with no distraction, then you become more focused on uh, deeper layers of your um, like subconscious um, levels of the mind that, uh, where there are a lot of things that, which are stuck there. And they slowly uh, emerge, and that as they emerge, uh, you learn how to transform them into like um, um, it could be like empty light of um, you. You get you can see through. You know, it's not so solid or rigid anymore. It's become much more uh, workable, and uh, you, you, it's like you know neuroplasticity of the of the of the brain. It's really something like that that actually. Uh, when you are not training your mind, things appear to you in a very kind of real way, you know, like, and, but the more you, you work on, the, on these the deeper la layers of the subconscious mind, then actually things become more uh, in an illusionary, illusionary, yeah, uh, forms. It's, um, it's less real. And at, at the ultimate stage, it become like pure empty light. So there is nothing to grasp anymore. So it's a lot of it's all about freeing yourself from all this stuff which are stuck into your uh, into your the collective subconscious um, or mind or into your own kind of stories and yeah. It must be. I I, I guess that's that's something that you can really grasp the power if you experience it. I guess like words can only describe a certain amount of, of the whole thing. Um, but it must be really hard to reconnect to normal life after that. Yeah, yeah, that's a very good point. That's, um, I think the whole point of this training is that um, how to um, integrate that kind of... Um, understanding or learning or we can call it wisdom into your uh, daily life and to your relationships into your relation to the world and how you actually are going to act in this world and speak in this world and connect with other people in this world so that you can actually um, measure the level of realization of, of your spiritual um, kind of ad, ad, um, progress uh, according to how you are able to, to relate in the world in a in a more like flowing or a smooth smooth way yeah i feel like going from a distraction free quiet peaceful structured structure organized world to a chaotic noisy rumbling full of distraction here and there world 
must take a while to adjust and to take a deep breath. Okay, I can. I don't know. He must be a challenge. <laughs> Hell of a challenge. After I feel. four years as well. I would say that the journey really starts when you actually get out of the monastery. Yeah, 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 I can see the the that's the biggest challenge probably. Yeah, it's when you actually you step out and it's like holy crap. <laughs> <laughs> so that's also the story of um, in my book when I when I'm trying to to really describe in the with a lot of details is how after I came back I'm back to the world, I actually um, integrated what I learned into into action and um, action towards uh, others in the way of um, because my, my motivation for going to the monastery was that I wanted to become in service in service for yeah, to others so so after four years learning about religion learning about yourself uh, and having this inward journey uh, you decided to stay, stay around, <laughs> stay around the mountains, and and you became a guide in the Himalaya in Tibet, right? Yes, that's um, for my living um, uh, because there are so many mountains in the Himalayas. So my, most of us who live there, we actually end up being a guide, a trekking guide, or a mountain guide, or any kind of guide, like cultural guide. Uh, so I became a guide. And at the same time, my meditation teacher uh, from the monastery, where I was a student, um, he, he um, made a wish. I was in, back in 2002, when I was 20, 22 years old, he made a wish that in his hometown in Tibet, um, where only nomadic people can live, Tibetan nomads who live from the herding of the axe. Um, he, he wanted that the, the nomads could learn from modernity, modern life, and integrate that um, new lifestyle uh, into their, own, their old lifestyle okay. so that there would be a, a meg, um, merging or... Merge. Where merge, yeah, uh, of these two in a harmonious and peaceful way. And he couldn't go back to Tibet. It was uh, he left when in 59, 1959, during the Cultural Revolution in China. And um, after that, he was in exile, so it was impossible to get back. So I was like in a kind of a messenger for him. Uh, sent to Tibet uh, to to do that to 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 actually um, I mean um, put into action I mean this this yeah his dream yeah his dream yeah uh, so then I end up being a not only a guide but also um, a project um, coordinator for um, NGOs in the in Western Tibet, in the very, very remote areas of Tibet, where other NGOs actually um, couldn't go because it was too remote. And there were, the population there is all scattered into the huge, huge, huge territory. Um, and the, the, the crisis that the nomads were facing at that time was also a, 
really challenging because the modern, the modern life was coming all around them with all the industrialization and uh, urbanization and uh, all kind of like construction work all around. And uh, there were schools and hospitals and all like coming uh, toward them. But they had no clue um, on how to adapt to this new reality. So education was, was really like um, lacking uh, for them to, to understand the, what, what was going on. So at that time, yeah, I, I, I started my journey in Tibet um, being a, a project coordinator. But actually, it didn't go very well because um, it, it was too hard to... To, 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 to be in the middle of this, um, all these changes. And, um, yeah, it's two, it's two worlds colliding, I guess. Yes, yes, yes. And two almost uh, opposite uh, worlds and vision of the world. So, um, one side, you know, the traditional uh, nomadic lifestyle is all based on living in harmony with nature. So how to balance uh, human activity in a way that is not harmful for, for, um, for the pasture land, for the grasslands, and uh, to, to maintain a, like a balance in the ecosystem. And uh, this kind of knowledge that the nomadic people, they hold, it's, uh, it's very rare actually today in, in the world. And uh, it's very precious, but nobody really values that knowledge. And um, so there is no school for them to actually regain kind of uh, confidence that uh, there is some kind of like um, interest or value to, to keep them alive, to keep that alive. So, yeah, I mean, uh, they were pushed to go to a Chinese school, learn Chinese and, uh, and to turn them back to the from the, the old style, the traditional lifestyle. How, how did you communicate? English or? Uh, only Tibetan. I speak Tibetan uh, okay. since I'm 16 years old, actually. I started learning Tibetan when I was in France. And yeah, I was very, very determined. <laughs> My parents, they could no, <laughs> no stop me. They couldn't stop me from like really uh, diving into the Tibetan culture. And I learned Tibetan. I learned uh, how to write, to speak. And then when I arrived in Tibet, I learned all the, the nomadic uh, dialects, which are very different from the classical oh. language, the Tibetan language. So t nomadic dialects are all like different, dif different from one valley to another. Yeah. So for for Tibetans, uh, it so was interesting. I don't know why this. Yes. Yeah. Sorry, I, was Go ahead. Say, I don't know why this crossed my mind, but it's interesting. I I ever wonder if you. No, I wonder if you ever think you were born in the wrong country, and I wonder how your life would be if you were born in Tibet and that's where you grew up. If you would still be obsessed, not obsessed, you know, if you'd still be <laughs> yeah. wanting to be into Tibet or if you'd be like no actually I want to go to France instead like it's so interesting to I don't know why that came into my mind then yeah, yeah I guess like from the Tibetan point of view uh, how they interpret what happened to me is that they believe that um, I was born in Tibet in my previous life for many lives I was connected to this um, 
to this ground of Tibet, to the, the, um, the place, the territory. So I belong to it. And then uh, in this in this lifetime, uh, even I was born in uh, in the Western country, I did any, everything I could to go back to where I, I belong. Because you've got a very strong connection to Tibet, it's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, this is for my li uh, previous life connection. That's amazing. Mm. And then there is what is incredible, uh, and I want, I've got a million questions about that. <laughs> is uh correct me if i'm wrong but you became eventually <laughs> not in one day the first european woman to climb three times the everest yeah that's another story and uh how how did you get there i'm i'm i, I don't know why i'm obsessed with that jeremy's dying to do out mount everest I'm i like, mean no, i, I know it's die. insane <laughs> I, I i i hate cold but i don't know why i'm attracted by climbing this thing it's like oh my god <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, Everest is, is just there, you know, that's what the Mallory said. Uh, why do you claim Everest? Yeah, he said it because it's there. Um, what was it like the first time you climbed it? Like, it must have been terrifying for a start. I mean, the first time kind of being at the base camp and looking up and just, I can't imagine it. No, I was not uh, scared at all. So, um, really? no, I was just like... Um, Kind of excited on the on the slopes you know when i see some kind of different parts of the the climb is uh relatively easy uh, apart from some some slope that's uh kind of uh, verticals and that i found that um parts more technical parts uh exciting because it keep me kind of like um first you know it kept me not feeling in sleep because otherwise, you know, you're, you don't sleep much in the mountains. So because of the extreme conditions, you, you, you don't eat much, you don't sleep much, you don't breathe. Breathing also is a big problem. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's uh, for the body, it's very difficult to stay awake. So when I get uh, in front of the challenge, when I face a challenge, I mean, it, it, it wake me up. Then I found it, the energy is back again. So, and also at that time, the, the mind training helped me a lot, what I've learned in the monastery. So, yeah, I, yeah it was a combination of, uh, because I live in Lhasa for now almost uh, 18 years, actually. I've been a, a resident, full-time resident in Lhasa. Uh, I, I've stayed in a high altitude for, um, I mean, most of the year. So when mm -hmm. I start climbing up to 5,000 meters high, um i don't feel much like the high altitude sickness or uh, my body can adapt very easily then when i start uh, when i started become um like um how, what do you call like a summiter summiter means that you high you climb higher mountains to the summit okay. Yeah, where oh uh, yeah okay yeah <laughs> it's uh it's really like a Western way of thinking you know that okay yeah. there are mountains so now we have to go to the summit and we have <laughs> we do have to beat records and we have to always higher always faster always more 
And so I, I didn't really like this way of thinking, but um, because it was part of my job also to, to lead uh, trekking or to lead expeditions, mm-hmm. I also kind of became uh, trapped into that game that going like always into, into more difficult climbs and higher mountains and all kind of expeditions. So from the age 33 up to like now 40 years old, um, I was trained to with the Lhasa mountain guide school to climb uh, mountains uh, every year in all kind of different um countries and context of and so it became really like a step by step step by step um training that and i did yeah finally climbing everest was uh, just uh, not the most difficult climb that i did but uh the longest for sure it lasts two two months mm. it lasts two months and i did that just three times uh, in 2013, first time, then 2016, and then 2017. But I did that to to help the the Tibet Mountain Guide School to actually set up a, a, a project to clean up the mountain, not just to be the records. Or it was just a, a way to support them into their own projects and uh, to to be an example myself for other climbers. So it was possible to actually uh, change the industry, the expedition climbing industry into a more responsible one. Before we we dive into the the Clean Everest project, uh, I've got two questions about the the actual climbing. Only two? Yeah, I'm going to try to keep it (laughs) to two main ones. it's interesting not the way you present it is interesting because you say it's not the most technical or the hardest climb you ever did so but you have the skills already because from a young age you've been doing climbing and everything so but i feel i don't know i've been reading books about it and everything and and i feel the real challenge it's about like you said the body like the breathing the food the the the, the environment and also the mind like being in a freezing cold environment for two months not eating not seeing i don't know anything green anything like i think it's more like a battle like within the body physical and and psychological than the actual technical climb um but i mean how how does it feel to be such an such like hostile environment because i mean it's 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 cold windy like it's bad i mean it's not like miami (laughs) (laughs) yes the wind the wind is the it's always there uh you cannot Mm. rest from the the sound of the of the and also the feeling of having the winds always around you Uh, and the wind is so strong really like sometimes you can't walk on the on the slope because uh, especially for me who is uh, uh, I'm actually a t- tiny woman that I weigh like my weight is 46 kilos so uh, <laughs> I can get carried away by the wind easily <laughs> um, 
And yeah, I mean, the, the lack of sleep and good eating and the, this is something that you get used to, um, again, step by step is really uh, being also just on the, on the, on the, at the present moment. Mm -hmm. um, not kind of pro projecting yourself into uh, future problems or difficulties that um, that helps a lot to for the body to actually um, just relax with what what is what is there uh, with what it is um, and not to, to try to, to to want something else so I think the body also follow the mind that if the mind is uh, relaxed with um, accepting what is there, um, then the body also, by just relaxing, uh, find some new resource, um, the resource that's uh, to warm you up, to actually be able to, to rest in that uh, hostile environment and to, to let go of any kind of tension or wanted, wanting something which is not there. So yeah, it's a, it's a training for the body to, to just be completely out of your comfort zone and to find a being in, uh, comfort in, uh, in that new state. Yeah. Mm. Interesting. And my, my second question to keep it short is, I've got to ask it, how does it feel to be on top of the world? Literally, I mean, what what's the view like? How could, do you, you know? Do you have actually time to appreciate it, or it's so it's so bad and and there are like so many people climbing and it's actually like okay, I made it, I'm going back. <laughs> the first time um, I've been very lucky with the the condition to go to the summit were excellent. So it was uh, clear weather uh, after the sunrise around eight nine in the morning. Uh, it was pure blue sky and uh, that day there was no other expedition than me with two uh two friends um, guides sherpa guides uh, who were climbing to the summit so basically it was like um, very clear in terms also of, of um, not being stuck in the yeah, yeah, people rushing up traffic. Yeah, <laughs> what what I have to say also about the traffic is um, it's completely different feeling in the north side of the Mount Everest and the south side. South side, uh, when you reach the summits um, from the Nepal, you actually be uh, more in the traffic because there are thousand people trying to climb on from that side. But on the mm. on the Tibetan side, there are only couple of hundred like two maximum 300 people a year who are allowed to climb so there is no rush in, uh, being uh, in the this messy kind of traffic okay. in to, to the summit so when I first reached the summit in 2013 um, I was kind of ecstatic um, I, I could stay around maybe 40 45 minutes uh, wow. j just by myself in on the on the summit, I could pray. I could uh, I put a, a a flag, but not a national flag or um, not even a religious flag. But it was the a prayer was written by uh, someone who really cared for for the earth, 
and wanted to protect the earth from all the natural catastrophic natural accidents yeah and uh, this this yeah it was it was a prayer for the hearse and uh, the symbolic action of uh, planting this seed in, in, at the top of Mount Everest, the top of the world, it was um, for me. It was the beginning also of uh, the action of cleaning up the Everest that came after that. So it was a very symbolic uh, time, and uh, again, uh, the mind turned in words, so that I could feel. Um, connected to everything which was around me, like uh, 360 degrees of incredible summits of, uh, you can even see the, the, the curve of the, of, the, of the earth at the time of the sunrise. <laughs> yeah, it's really high. And, um, and I know that most of the, the mountains around, so some of them have been climbing them. So they are like very familiar to me, very close to me. Mm. So it was just like being at home. And then after that, yeah, I came down and it was, uh, that was also very joyful. No, no, no much effort that, um, it was fine actually. Did you climb with oxygen or without? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I did climb with oxygen, but, uh, again, um, I, in a very reasonable way. So I was trying not to push my body too much. Uh, I, I know I couldn't do it without oxygen, but uh, I, I also wanted to not um, kind of use too much of this uh, of the uh, complementary uh, oxygen. Can I ask you something a little bit personal? Yeah. <laughs> so if it's two months that you're going up and down, right? How how do you deal with toilets and how do you deal with periods? Because I imagine that's not funny if you're there with two guys and having to do that and deal with period pains and feeling miserable and wanting to eat chocolate and sit and watch a film. <laughs> like, how do you deal with that on the top of a bloody mountain? <laughs> uh, that's, yeah, that's a very good point too. Um, so for, for the men, they usually pee into a, a bottle into the tent. But for, for me, um, I've tried, you know, with this kind of like device that you can use that yeah, the cone things. Or yeah, but it doesn't work yeah. for it. So no. I, I usually go outside. Uh, so it's very difficult because uh, even on the slope sometime without the, 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 the security rope, you can just uh, fail. Um, so you have to stay in a, with the security rope uh, tied to, to something and then um, yeah go to pee or even more and then also with the 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 full uh, down jackets that you you have to, to open like from uh, yeah from downstairs and then and then for the period also I usually I always have my periods at the time of the summit day uh, that's a, that's a, a law that natural law that I discovered in the mountain that it come together and uh, so I have to deal with the, also this kind of logistics. Because I can't, I can't imagine having like cold hands and having to yeah. get, like touch any part of your, I, don't, I just can't imagine that whilst yeah, wearing, like you said, like a huge jacket and being cold and having wind and people around. And well, it's more than being cold because I guess if you, like you can get frost, frostbite pretty quickly, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So, so you have, different, I mean, you have uh, several layers of gloves, yeah. 
Yeah, actually, the, the training for uh, climbing these kind of mountains is a lot to do with also how to use all this equipment and how to use it um, in a very kind of, um, uh, how do you call that, like flow, flowing, like... Oh, yeah, naturally. Yeah, naturally. It becomes like a second skin. Yes, yes, yes. So that you don't need to think too much about it and you don't need to become too emotional about it. Because if you don't start thinking or being emotional about what is happening, then you actually waste a lot of energy. And this energy, you actually can't really um, afford to, to waste it because you really need it to, for, for survival. So actually, I think it's, it's also a very good training that, um, to, to understand how we usually make made up a lot of stories to what happened to us, but when we actually in extreme condition, back to basic, back to essential, you know, I, it's, it's so much simple. Things are just like, and the relationship with people who are in the, in the tents, you know, it's become so simple. It's just about drinking, eating, sleeping. And yeah, we smile to each other. We, we joke a little bit or, but um, there is, I mean, I don't say that emotion, emotional states are uh, problematic, but it's just that I just want to point out that it can become a, a huge waste of, of energy if we are not aware of uh, how much actually we get caught into uh, our stories and all the emotions that are related to it. So uh, to me, mountains really, it's like a mirror to show you how much actually um, you usually put, add on something on what, what your experience is and then to be able to just cut immediately all that so that you actually don't waste your, your time or your energy into that. I yeah, don't know if like, that makes sense, but... <laughs> no, no, yeah, it does. Yeah, no, I, I, I mean, it's not the same, but I can understand what you mean in terms of like scuba, um, doing scuba diving. You know, when like you try to move in a good way so you don't waste your oxygen, you don't like moving around like a, a kid or whatever, and you're really mindful about your breath and like in a certain way i can i can see like something like that being like yeah yeah you just focus your mind like it's really like well like you said it's survival at this like it's 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 so easy to any mistake at this level is so dangerous that yeah it's survival mode it's not party town <laughs> <laughs> yeah and it has something really also almost like mystical about it because um it's what we call the flow the flow is when we actually become one with um, the instinct kind of um, ex level of our being. Ex instinct, no, in uh, how do you call it? Instinctive. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In, in a way of that, um, there is no mental activities involved into the experience. It's just uh, the experience itself that you merge with and uh, you become fully aware of everything which is uh, included into uh, this experience like the environment your, your the move you make and then because it, be it become one so it, it creates a certain kind of state that um, there is no space for for thinking in that and <laughs> makes me want to go even more no Jeremy <laughs> After I know it's crazy. Like, I've read books about it. It's, it's pretty expensive as well. Yeah, that's it's not uh, like a, around the fifty thousand or sixty-five thousand US dollars. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's a whole. <laughs> it's a long project. Wow. Uh, yeah. 
Um, okay, we have to stay skint forever so you can't afford to go there. Yeah, then. okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, so how, how did you come... I mean, I can see where it's coming from, but how did you come up with the idea of creating the Clean Everest project? And correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, in three years, you picked up something like 10 tons of rubbish on the mountain. That's... <laughs> there, there was a lot of uh, rubbish on the mountain uh, when we we first started uh, like um, checking on the situation uh, regarding... What kind of rubbish? What is it? Yeah, that's mostly foods left over, but like cans, uh, also epigas uh, recharge, uh, uh, no, not recharge, how do you call it? Like the epigas bottles. Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, and also some oxygen bottles, but um, some old like tents, uh, materials, and um, all kind of technical also climbing uh, equipments. But mainly like plastics, um, glass for um, food, you know. So and most of the rubbish were were located at six thousand five hundred meters. Um, when we started really cleaning up the mountains from the from the ten tons rubbish um, left on, on the slopes, that it was just after the earthquake in Nepal uh, in 2015. So most of the expeditions had to leave like suddenly, and they left uh, all their equipment and food at that time. Um, so. 2016 was a big year for uh, uh, starting cleaning up, and but at that time we were not really well organized with the um, going uh, bringing down, you know, the the bags of rubbish that we had collected. How 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 did you do it? Because I mean, it sounds easy to take a rubbish out of the house, but when you're climbing with so much gear and you are like literally climbing on a mountain, how do you? carry rubbish of like bags of rubbish is not that easy i think right <laughs> well first is the um, most of the rubbish at, at some camps so the camps are usually on some flat areas so to collect okay. the, the 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 trash i mean it's not easy because even though it's kind of uh, flat at some area it's also yeah yeah it's just uh, you have some uh, of course, the, ter the terrain, the ground is not um, easy to 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 yeah. be in. To be. Um, so yeah, we, we we just go everywhere with bags and collect all the all the rubbish, and then we have place, uh, I mean spots where we store the the bags, and then after that there is the um, another group of people who actually come to bring them down. So it's two different jobs, mm. and uh, the people who carry them down, they are professionals, mm, like Sherpas. For for the camps were above seven thousand meters, we cannot um, do it as a, a volunteer, you know, without uh, oxygen and experience for carrying down that, that kind of rubbish. So it's mainly professionals that would, uh, yeah, they have been also receiving cash for bringing back the, the trash. So we call it cash for trash. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 
it's actually six dollars per kilo that we pay and uh, for but that was not most of the trash uh, the, the most of the rubbish they were um, below six thousand meters and around six thousand five meters so for those it's carry uh, the, the yaks they carry down the bags so they can climb the yaks climb up to six thousand five hundred meters and usually they 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 come with yakmans you know herders nomads and they uh, they carry up the the mountain gears and food and all the equipment for for two months expeditions and when they go down they're empty so they usually we uh put the trash on the with on the yaks so they yeah. yeah but it's a long way actually it's 25 kilometers and uh, most of the yaks they are also uh, very kind of um, hard to manage <laughs> yeah because they, they don't like to carry loads so they kind of yeah move the lot trying to uh, throw their loads yeah <laughs> as far as possible but it's a lot of work <laughs> And so then in terms of food, what, what do you take? Because I didn't even think about that. You have to take two months worth of food with you. What do you eat and how do you carry that much food? And then what do you do with the waste? Because obviously, I don't imagine you were just leaving it on the floor. What did you do with all the waste from two months worth of packages? Yeah, so there are two kind of rubbish, actually. The, the old ones, that's from the 30 years of commercial expedition in the past that didn't care so much about bringing their rubbish down. Uh, but that that kind of rubbish we have been taking there, taking that um, down in um, different bags, and then there is the new mm -hmm. kind of uh, food and the new rubbish that you produce during the expedition um, that we are in. That that uh, logistic is different. That we actually try to separate the the food that can stay on the mountain, like. The, the the leftovers from the from the meals for example that can mm -hmm. animals can come and eat and i mean there is not much animals but birds <laughs> birds can yeah and uh, there is uh, the recyclable trash that we put in separate bags and then the non-recyclable non mm -hmm. and all that is uh, stored into a, a mess tent um, so when the, the yaks come up at, to the advanced base camp at 6,500 meters, then they actually uh, take the different bags and carry them down. But then in terms of food, like what's the typical thing that you would eat on a daily basis? Um, so the vegetables are difficult to keep in the, because it gets frozen. Uh, but potatoes are okay we can and the, some of the vegetables we managed to keep them with blankets <laughs> so yeah um basically it's um you know the dry foods that, and you can cook also some lentils and rice you know in, in nepal in the himalayas we um we mainly eat lentils and um dal we call that dal and and rice mm -hmm. yeah so with some um cans food you know that you actually they get frozen but you can just boil them and then uh, uh you can eat them but yeah you, you can forget about any kind of sophisticated food yeah and the, the the higher you climb the 
the less kind of diversity you get, um, it's all like dry food um, that you just, you know, have the little bags that with a zip and then you just put some hot water on it and you just eat it uh, directly. So you just need uh, actually uh, uh, to boil water for, um, but you need a lot of water. That's the other thing that we always forget, but the water is most difficult but because there is no water, of course. It's, um, it's all like ice, right? But can't you melt the snow then and use that? That's what we do, but it's, it's okay. a lot of effort to actually go and get the snow because for, for, to get just a cup of water, you actually need uh, to melt a lot of snow or ice. And actually oh. at this kind of altitude to, to boil the water, it takes more time. So basically yeah. all our free time, when we're not climbing, we spend it on boiling, boiling the water and drinking. Because the more the drink you drink, the better your body actually can adapt to the altitude. That's one very simple natural rule that for, for your kidney, to actually get your kidney work and get activated and to regulate the whole body, uh, it needs to have a lot of water to drain all this water. So you need to spend time uh, it, it's it's the main activity I would say during the expedition is to boil the water. So, what's a typical day like? What time would you typically get up? How many hours would you walk? And then, what time would you have lunch? Would you then walk again? What like what's the kind of typical? There's not really um, a typical schedule. day. Really uh, it really depends on the weather. <laughs> you just mm -hmm. wait for uh, you. You sleep, you know, sleep a lot. Uh, when the when there is a windy storm, kind of, you you can't even get out of your of your tent. So for weeks, sometimes mm -hmm. you don't do anything, just but just waiting into your tent. So there is no really like uh, even meals, proper meals. You of course go out to drink and eat, uh, but you don't climb, so you don't eat much. Uh, but the typical day for climbing is uh, usually you get up very early because um, it's always better for the body to climb uh, in the morning. So, yeah. And also because the weather is going to change usually around the midday or during the afternoon because of the, the, the warmth of the, the, mm -hmm. yeah, the sunlight. So um, when you finish climbing, like maybe in midday, um, then you just start um, either setting up your camp where you arrive and mm -hmm. then it takes a while, you know, to set up the tent and uh, to start boiling water. Again, that's the, <laughs> the main activity. And then, yeah, you just rest and uh, try to sleep um, as much as you can and uh, either you go continue the next day going up in the morning, early in the morning, and then going down back to the or uh, to the uh, initial camp for me, yeah, from where you started to climb. So you only really hike in the mornings. Yeah, I mean, if you are really slow, um, you can just uh, climb the all day for one. It really depends on so also on the on the people and how quick they are on the mountain. But some people like they like to do also two, um, uh, two climbs in one day. So mm -hmm. yeah, I, I usually do that even like for the summit push when we actually, um, you know, we have five days 
for Mount Everest uh, to, to mm-hmm. from base camp to summit with uh, four five five camps so it's actually six days um, so yeah you can do two steps into uh, into one I don't know if you should say that but you know what I mean yeah yeah, yeah that makes sense yeah, yeah. Um, so the last time you climbed was three years ago then 2017 you said um, and when did the idea of writing a book uh, came because you published the book uh, two months ago early October uh, how did you come up with the idea of the desire the idea of writing a book uh, did you write it when you were still over there or did you move back to France to write it how how was that process yeah, I had no desire, so whatever, um, to 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 write or to talk about my experience um, when I was climbing. Um, actually, my 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 cousin um, two years ago in two thousand eighteen, I think or nineteen, she actually wanted to write my story. She's an author. She's a writer, and so I, yeah, I said okay. Uh, I just wanted to help her somehow. And then uh, we started collecting uh, stories together and she she was writing. And then suddenly I realized that actually, um, to me, the story was not only about uh, facts, of, you know, external uh, descriptions of what was happening in the mountains or how we managed to... Uh, bring down ten tons of of, of rubbish, and it, all the the spiritual dimension was um, as important as the uh, as the, the the story itself. Yeah. So then I started to really want to to put my own kind of um, writing into it, and to be able to describe the the inner perceptions. Um, so that it's really balanced between the like I would say even like inner ecology to the outer mm. ecology um, bec- nice way to put it yeah that was the, the intention at the end is to to bridge the two and to show that there would be no outer ecology without the inner ecology and same I mean there is there could be inner, there cannot be inner ecology without the outer one so yeah in 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 that perspective, I decided I, I, I should uh, I should learn myself to, to write. So it was a kind of painful process because uh, <laughs> I'm not really trained for uh, first. I mean, to talk about myself was really not um, something I learned from the Tibetan culture because people are very, very humble, humble uh, in, in that culture. And I respect that. So um, I couldn't identify myself to someone who suddenly you know put so much importance into her life that i have to put that into a book so um yeah it was it was very interesting uh to 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 process all this um resistance resisting um, i had that why should i do that that writing and then the the Finally, the the outcome um, of of that process is that um, actually I believe that um, 
your story of recording like podcast is my story and my story is your story and so actually there is no separation of you know mm. i exist because of you and you exist because of me i mean in the in that moment where we where now we are co-creating this moment so it's yeah. so simple i mean and when we become aware of that it's so freeing it's not about me it's not about you it's just what about you know what we are creating now and and it it's it gave me so much like a, a expansion of um i don't have to limit myself to mm. uh, just keeping for myself what i believe is mine you know <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah no that it, it really a big a big relief i feel also i mean the way i see it is uh you you i i understand this feeling about who am i to write a book who am like this humble side of like i'm it's just me and and this is who i am but i don't need to brag about it i don't need to write a book or i understand that but i also th there is also the side of you're gonna bring so much value to other people um you're gonna help other people to experience something they might never be able to experience you might help other people to have some realization that maybe they want something different for their life and everything so yeah it's it's you, you can also see it as putting it out of the world uh and it can be like a book a podcast a, a movie anything it doesn't matter the form but just like putting it out there it's going to help other people to relate to you to to have their own stories and to move forward with life so it's it's also nice like for the people yeah i really now get in touch with the this this um action of sharing now uh, yeah that's uh, that's how i see also my my coming back to the western world because it's uh, very new to me it's only 2020 because of the lockdown i i couldn't go back to tibet So I, I did actually publish the book because also I had this kind of like space into my life that uh, for writing and sharing and and talking <laughs> and just because uh, yeah, I don't need to talk too much about it. But you can't really express yourself really everywhere in the world, you know. <laughs> and from where I come yeah, from, that uh, definitely that's <laughs> that something is it's an issue. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So what's what's the plan for the future? Covid is going to get away at one point. Hopefully, we're going to come back to a sense of normal and travel again. Hopefully, what's your what's your plan? Would you, are you planning to go back there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm yeah. Not, right now, I'm um, applying for my, my visa, and um, and yeah, I want to. I really want to become a bridge between China and um, ecology, um, and the West. In the in the Western world, in the in terms of um, you know how we view um, ecology in our different vision and how to bridge it. Yeah, in a sense, I guess your your life doesn't belong in France anymore. I guess your spirit, your 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 life is over there for you. That's where you feel you belong, right? Yeah, I still feel like I belong to to the, to this part of the world and uh, in Tibet and China and and but to, now I feel that because I was born in the in a western country in France um yeah so culturally uh, uh, I can be a bridge between the um, 
um, different vision of of ecology and how to to merge this uh, this this two world and this two approach into uh, one global um, vision. Something pretty random, but you just mentioned about a visa. You've been living in Tibet for so long. You still need a visa to live there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There is no such okay. like a national nationalization of. Uh, yeah. I cannot be a, a a Chinese citizen. Oh yeah, because Tibet is still part of China. Like a, oh, forgot about that. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. <laughs> Interesting. Um, Do you see your book turning into a film? Oh. And who would play you if it did? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I really wish my, my book first is translated into English and it, it will happen in 2021. Oh, cool. Yeah, that's, and I also want my book to be translated into Chinese. And um, yeah, if the story uh, is turned into a, into a, a movie, um, I would love... Mm, need to be played by a Chinese woman. Actually, really, my heart right now goes to um, actually to give back to China as much as I can because I, everything I, I did in terms of projects, um, not only Clean Everest, but also other projects related to education and nomadic lifestyle, uh, it's all great um, thanks to, to China that they, they let the, all this happen. So I I think it's time also for me to to really pay back my gratitude and and to bring something back uh, for the young generation, especially in terms of uh, spiritual values and the ecology in China. Yeah. Mm. Um, I didn't mention it, but yeah. So your book is called. So right now it's in French. Uh, Respire, tu es vivante. So which is uh, breathe your life. Uh, if you keep the the same title, um, so for anyone who speaks French, I'm gonna it's available on Amazon. So I'll I'll link it in the show notes so people can take a look at it, and uh, they'll get a notification when it's in English. Um, so you, I feel your vision is really like about helping and everything. If if people are interested to reach out to you to help to get involved in some way, uh, I don't know how easy it is to volunteer over there or to help in some sort of way. Like, what's what's the best way people could help uh, in in with your vision? You know. Well, for for now, um, to to work on the fields uh, in on Mount Everest or other mountains of Tibet, it's kind of difficult. Um, but it's it's possible, like for from volunteers to come and climb and uh, help with the, um, collecting the rubbish. But also, what is possible is to to donate for the the foundation in the, in Tibet that we created, Himalaya Foundation, to actually replicate the Clean Everest model, uh, waste management mm. model for other peaks of uh, the Himalaya. Um, so now we have trained train teams, uh, local teams were able to really carry on with the work. Um, so yeah, donations are welcome. I also have a, a website, uh, highlandinitiatives.com, mm. uh, where all the projects are described, presented. And, um, and yeah, I mean, to, to be in touch with me regarding also, um, you know, 
topics in my book that uh, eventually are like um, interested, interesting to to people and to share, exchange. Yeah, I'm ready now to connect with also more like of the the Western culture. So I, I'm interested in uh, being in in communication now. Yeah, what's the best way to get in touch with you? Um, yes, through my email. Uh, the email that yeah. you you have. Yeah. Okay, so I'll link it in the show notes so people can can email you. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll link all the websites and everything anyway, so people can see what what you're up to and. Hopefully, when you will be back in Tibet, hopefully soon, <laughs> uh, you yeah, we can see that. Um, I'm not going to talk too much about it because we're going to do an episode about it. But next year, and eventually, we are planning to be in this part of the world. So it might be a chance, a chance to meet in person somewhere over there in Asia. <laughs> ah. That'd be nice. Yeah. Mm, yeah. So, yeah, we'll see. We can talk about it offline. Because <laughs> there's going to be a whole episode about that coming soon. So, yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Marianne. It's been so amazing to ask all these different questions and to hear your story from right from your kind of childhood up until now. It's been so fascinating. So thank you so much for sharing. It's a sharing. beautiful journey. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting to see how it's kind of it's kind of come full circle, like, you know, growing up in the wilderness and being very connected to nature as a child to then using that in your adulthood to try and help the planet with the cleaning and it's just and also i feel like you 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 found a way to use your meditation skills that you learn in the monastery and and to use that in your daily life right now because i guess without those skills uh, you might not be able to do everything you do in a mountain because it's helping you with self-control with your body and everything so it's yeah, interesting it's how, how everything is coming together in your life and 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 uh, yeah and well, there's still more to come anyway, so... <laughs> yeah, that's true, yeah. So thank you so much for being on our podcast. Um, everybody, make sure you go and send her an email if you want to say hello. Make sure you buy the book on Amazon, when it, either in French now or when it comes out in English. I can't wait to read that. Just learn French, people. Or just learn French and then you can <laughs> read it. <laughs> um, but thank you so much for listening. We really hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, make sure you share it and come back next Wednesday for a brand new episode and we will see you then. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you all.